The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the giant yellow spiders set to invade the eastern seaboard of North America are not as scary as the internet is making them seem. Plus, the Smithsonian is returning a number of artworks to Nigeria, and President Biden is considering a digital currency for the United States. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. All right, so I saw a couple of headlines about this story last week, but quickly realized it wasn't really a big deal at all, so I wasn't going to talk about it on this show. But then, sometime over the last 48 hours, it has completely blown up into disaster piece theater with clickbait headlines, fear-mongering about it, and people who were only reading those headlines and not the articles posting alarmist hyperbole about how 2022 just can't cut us a break. It's murder hornets all over again. Except this time, it's spiders. Giant, yellow, three-inch-wide spiders that can weave webs up to ten feet deep. But they're practically harmless. According to the University of Georgia, whose researchers published the paper in mid-February that a bunch of outlets have been blowing out of proportion, the Joro spider first arrived in the state of Georgia in 2013 and has been spreading throughout the southeastern U.S. since then, but their range is now expanding up through the entire eastern seaboard. The Joro spider is a golden orb weaver, a genus consisting of several species that create the kind of circular webs we often see in warmer climates. Its closest relative, the golden silk spider, has been in the southeastern U.S. for over a century and a half, but it's never moved further north because it is vulnerable to the cold. This latest study discovered that the Joro spider does not share that weakness. It has double the metabolism of the golden silk spider, a 77% higher heart rate, and is able to survive the kind of cold snap that golden silk spiders and many other golden orb weavers perish from. So they can survive the chill of the Northeast, but how will they get there? The same way they managed to spread so quickly across all of Georgia, and how they've spread across most of their native Japan. A spider technique called ballooning, and a human proclivity for traveling and shipping items long distances. Quoting UGA today, Joros can also use their silks to carry them across the wind to new locations, a behavior called ballooning. It's part of the reason why Joros were able to spread so rapidly across the state of Georgia. When hatchlings emerged in the spring, they'd ride along to someplace new. Their offspring did the same the next year. But humans also factor into the equation. The potential for these spiders to be spread through people's movements is very high, said study co-author Benjamin Frick. Anecdotally, right before we published this study, we got a report from a grad student at UGA who had accidentally transported one of these to Oklahoma. And continuing from UGA today, the first Joros to arrive in the U.S. were likely stowaways on shipping containers. Now that they're here, the chances of Joros hitching a ride to a new locale on a car or in luggage are high. End quote. 
Frick and lead author Andy Davis both say there's no reason to be cruel or to try to eradicate the spiders. Davis says if you take down their web to move them aside, they'll just be back next year, saying that we should learn to live with them. And Frick added, quote, humans are at the root of their invasion. Don't blame the Joro spider, end quote. But should we be concerned? According to Davis, the Joro spiders do not have an effect on the local food webs or ecosystems. NBC News, which, first of all, delightfully informs us that the name Joro comes from the mythical Japanese creatures called Jorogomo, who are giant spiders that shapeshift into beautiful women in order to kill and eat young men. So, wow, Joro spiders are really just getting a bad rap at every turn. But NBC News also points out that while the Joro spiders are technically considered invasive, because they are non-native to the U.S., that doesn't necessarily mean that they're harmful. A lot of non-native species are harmless, some because they just can't really survive in an ecosystem that they didn't evolve in, and others, well, they just fortunately don't cause much harm or disruption to crops, other animals, or humans. Quoting NBC News, Juro spiders appear to be in that category. Much of the U.S. has a climate similar to Japan's, which is one of the reasons it's possible that Joro spiders could make their way out of Georgia and up the East Coast. And while they do eat, and are likely eaten by, native species, Joro spiders don't seem to cause problems for ecosystems or the economy. However, they can still be a nuisance. Just ask entomologist Will Hudson, whose front porch couldn't be used after he found Joro webs 10 feet deep stretching across it. That's why study authors Davis and Frick call it an invasive species, even though it doesn't cause any known major problems. End quote. And, I mean, yeah, a 10-foot deep spider web on my porch would certainly feel like something out of a horror movie, so I get the alarm from some people, but that's still not necessarily harmful. And both the study authors and NBC News' science communicator Adam Larson point out that these Joro spiders might actually help control the populations of more invasive species. Spiders eat up to 880 million tons of insects a year, and they could serve as an additional food source themselves for natural predators like birds. Larson does offer the caveat that there could still be things we don't know about the Joro spider, and that they could definitely prove to be quite the pest. But let's talk about some of the ways people have been exaggerating these big yellow spiders from pests to all-out horror shows. Axios had one of the most egregious examples. Their headline, Giant spiders expected to drop from the sky across the East Coast this spring, sent Twitter whirling. They picked out or piled onto words from the study like colonize, sobering, parachuting down from the sky, and the size of a child's hand, which helped people react with fear, even if a sort of mock kind, more so than Axios's quick lines about the spider's fangs being too small to break human skin. And under a header in the article that reads, Other terrifying things to know about the Joro spider, Axios includes this absolutely unnecessary comparison, quote, They likely traveled across the globe on shipping containers, similar to the bubonic plague, end quote. What? So many species invade other lands from traveling on shipping containers. You really don't need to go there, Axios. My friend and nonprofit director Katie Bowers had a field day with this on Twitter, listing out other sentences we might hear from Axios. Quote, Poor sleep impacts one in three Europeans, similar to the bubonic plague. Shakespeare worked prolifically in the 15th century, similar to the bubonic plague. Pizza rat carried the slice of pizza across town, similar to the bubonic plague. End quote. 
The fear-mongering is just wild. But as for the whole parachuting or dropping down from the sky thing that Axios led with and a lot of people clung onto, that is part of the ballooning behavior that I mentioned. Science communicator T. Francis explained it a little bit more deeply on Twitter. Quote, Now, most of you wouldn't notice a male or baby one of these huge, invasive, giant, venomous hell spiders, and as it's the tiny ones that are doing the parachuting, that's pretty much a moot point. Yes, babies and males disperse and get about by ballooning or bridging, but it's no big deal. Ballooning is a thing small spiders do, whereby they produce a loose strand of silk not anchored to anything, wait for it to get picked up by an electromagnetic field, and then fly off whilst attached to it in search of pastures new. The babies that do this are generally tiny. Now, physics kind of makes it impossible for a big spider to do that. Spiders that are too big to balloon can use a similar method called bridging, which involves letting a loose strand of silk go, then when it makes contact with something, they climb along it to a new place. The bottom line is, nobody is going to be getting out of their car one day to find tens of gigantic orb weavers raining down on them from the sky. If a Joro does balloon onto you, you won't even notice because it'll be so small. End quote. T. Francis and my friend Katie both additionally pointed out that it is absolutely wild how so many outlets felt the need to spin the story in this way, considering how many actually terrifying things there are happening in the world. Like, it's not like we've had a slow news day this week. Though, as my friend pointed out, the fact that the emotion they're trying to glomp onto is scary bug is kind of a relief compared to everything else going on. And maybe that's at the heart of this in the end. There are so many existential terrors brewing at the moment. It can be really tough to process what's going on and the reality of our world right now. But bugs? Spiders? That's a simple, long-entrenched human fear. We know how to deal with our fear of spiders. So, in the same way that the Joro Spider's namesake created a mythical villain for young men to put their fears onto, maybe we're all projecting our dread and anxieties about the world writ large onto these innocent, bright yellow spiders. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. So this is pretty interesting. The Smithsonian is going to be returning its entire collection of Benin bronzes to Nigeria, quoting Artnet's. The news comes as the Smithsonian works to develop a new restitution policy and signals a major ideological shift that could have major implications for U.S. museums. In total, most of the institution's 39 bronzes, many of which were looted by British soldiers in the notorious raid of Benin's royal palace in 1897, will be deaccessioned, a spokesperson told Artnet News. The institution has an agreement with Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments to coordinate the return. As part of the agreement, the Smithsonian will pay 
pay for the transport of the artifacts and fund education programs for Nigerians. In turn, some objects will return to Washington on long-term loans and for shared exhibitions, including a planned show at the Smithsonian curated by Nigerians. End quote. The Washington Post points out that this move could set a new bar for how museums respond to changing attitudes about cultural heritage and the legacy of colonial violence. And quoting further from the Post, Those who support the restitution say fears that these moves will be the death knell of museums are overblown and ignore the history of museum practice. There is a lot of where-will-it-end-ism, what-about-ism, slippery-slope-ism, said Dan Hicks, curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum at Oxford. Restitution is not a new idea. It has been slow to adapt to changing social ideas. Smithsonian Undersecretary for Museums and Culture Kevin Gover points out that the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian and National Museum of Natural History have repatriated thousands of Native American objects and human remains since 1989 when federal laws required they do so. When the laws were first passed, Gover said many worried that tribes would back up their trucks and empty the museums. It didn't happen, says Gover, who led the American Indian Museum from 2007 to 2020. It shaped a new relationship between the museums and the tribes, one that both parties found extraordinarily productive. It wasn't a transfer of wealth, it was a reciprocal transfer of knowledge. End quote. And that's what the Smithsonian is seeking with Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments as well, following their lead and deepening a relationship, helping make both institutions stronger. Some European institutions have been returning works as well, notably Germany, returning their Benin bronzes this time last year. But Abba Issa Tijani, director general of Nigeria's NCMM, commended the Smithsonian and says that they have not encountered another museum yet that has done this much. National Museum of Natural History curator Sabrina Schultz told Artnet, quote, It's really a cultural shift that we're talking about. It's about going beyond seeing the value of our work only as possessors of physical objects. This is an important time, not only for the institution, but also the museum profession. It's not just an evolution in how the institution wants to see itself, but an evolution in the roles and responsibilities that each one of us has. End quote. So, a bit of a follow-up to the February 8th episode when I discussed rumblings from the U.S. Federal Reserve that they may be pursuing a digital dollar, or CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. They put out a paper weighing the pros and cons without taking a final position. Well, in part of his executive order instructing government agencies to develop policies to manage cryptocurrencies, President Biden also instructed research to continue into CBDCs and the various implications it would have on the country. The research is to be conducted by the Secretary of the Treasury in consultation with the Secretary of State, Attorney General, Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and the Director of National Intelligence. Why so many parties? Well, the administration wants to make sure they're checking every box and leaving no stone unturned, because even though over 100 countries are also considering a CBDC, and some like China have already started rolling one out, it is a big deal that could have far-reaching impacts. 
Among those concerns outlined in Biden's executive order, quoting Ars Technica and the order, quote, economic growth, stability, and financial inclusion. The relationship between a U.S.-issued digital currency and digital assets administrated by the private sector, the future of sovereign and privately produced money globally, and implications for our financial system and democracy, the extent to which foreign CBDCs could displace existing currencies and alter the payment system in ways that could undermine United States' financial centrality, potential implications for national security, financial crime, and human rights, and the effects that foreign CBDCs may have on U.S. interests generally. The executive order encourages the Federal Reserve to assess the optimal form of United States CBDC and develop a strategic plan that evaluates the necessary steps and requirements for a potential implementation and launch of a United States CBDC. Biden also wants the Federal Reserve to evaluate how a CBDC could enhance or impede the ability of monetary policy to function effectively as a critical macroeconomic stabilization tool. Biden further asked federal agencies for an assessment of whether Congress would need to make legislative changes before the U.S. can issue a digital currency. End quote. Now, if you are new to the idea of a CBDC, definitely go back and listen to the February 8th show link in the show notes. But I will briefly quote from the Federal Reserve's explainer. While Americans have long held money predominantly in digital form, for example, in bank accounts, payment apps, or through online transactions, a CBDC would differ from existing digital money available to the general public because a CBDC would be a liability of the Federal Reserve, not of a commercial bank. A CBDC would be the safest digital asset available to the general public with no associated credit or liquidity risk. End quote. In my layman's mind, I think of it as functioning like cash, but digitally. Like if you paid at a till, the business gets that money right away instead of waiting and paying fees. If you don't have a credit card or bank account, as 5% of American households do not, you could participate in the growing number of transactions that require a form of digital payment. Now, among the downsides is a concern about government surveillance. A number of experts have flagged this issue with regards to China's digital yuan. If it were to fully take over all transactions there, which there is kind of a precedent for over in China with how critical WeChat is to daily life and transactions, then if you don't have it, your life becomes very limited. And could the government decide to take away your access? In the Chinese example, people point to the potential of activists having their access to the digital yuan taken away. Here in America, I think a more likely scenario would be people who have been incarcerated having limited access, or maybe in some places, folks who are undocumented struggling to get access. There are a lot of considerations here, and even though some would argue that we're already behind other countries in this process, it's also kind of wild to think that there are still so many of us who barely have a grasp on crypto and digital currencies, and yet our nations might be rolling them out relatively soon. As CNBC pointed out, Bitcoin's price was up 8% following Biden's executive order, which many interpreted as a supportive stance towards an industry that has long been considered fringe. Not quite so much anymore. Well, that's going to be it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. 
or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.